I'm Elizabeth Castelli. I'm acting director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and I'm very pleased to welcome you all to tonight's panel, What's on Your Plate? The History and Politics of Food. The Barnard Center for Research on Women is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. As the first research center of its kind in the United States, BCRW is committed to supporting critical academic inquiry and activist projects and to producing new forms of knowledge in the service of feminist social justice. One of the ways in which we support critical academic inquiry is to showcase the work of Barnard faculty members whose various intellectual projects in a range of disciplinary settings converge around shared topics or themes. Moreover, as we conceive of it, feminism is not merely a focus on women as the object of analysis, but rather a gender-critical lens that helps us to understand a wide array of social, political, economic, and historical phenomena. And so tonight's panel embodies both of these commitments, a commitment to feature the work of Barnard colleagues from the humanities, social sciences, and sciences, and a commitment to bring feminist forms of knowledge to bear on pressing issues of the day, in this case, the history and politics of food. The romantic poet Lord Byron put it this way, I will not dwell upon ragu or roasts, albeit all human history attests, that happiness for man, the hungry sinner, since Eve ate apples, much depends on dinner. And as our illustrious panelists this evening will help us to understand, much indeed does depend on dinner. Not only the immortal soul of Lord Byron's hungry sinner, but also local and transnational economics, environmental sustainability, geopolitical arrangements, and human communities, health, and cultural identities. Tonight's panel is emblematic of Barnard's interdisciplinary spirit, um, and I'm going to in introduce all the panelists at once, and they will just speak in succession in the order in which I introduce them. And then what we'll ha have after that is um, I'll try to pull together some questions that will get that panelists talking to each other a little bit, and then we'll open it up for questions. So our first speaker will be Kim F. Hall, who is the Lucille Hook Chair and Professor of English. Kim's area of academic specialization is Renaissance English literature, and she cultivates numerous other intellectual interests ranging from Shakespeare to black feminism and critical race theory. Kim is currently working on a book tentatively entitled Sweet Taste of Empire, which examines women, labor, and race in the Anglo-Caribbean sugar trade during the 17th century. She'll be followed by Deborah Valenzi, who is professor of history, specializing on European history, and especially European history since the Renaissance. Her work has been supported by numerous prestigious grants and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, among others. Her most recent book is Milk, A Local and Global History, and it appeared this summer from Yale University Press. Third on our roster is Paige West, who is Associate Professor of Anthropology here at Barnard. She's a cultural and environmental anthropologist, and her research and writing focus on the relationship between society and the environment. She's the author of From Modern Production to Imagined Primitive, The World of Coffee from Papua New Guinea, that will appear from Duke University Press, and also Conservation is our government now, The Politics of Ecology in Papua New Guinea, which was published by Duke in 2006. Our final panelist is Hilary Callahan, who is Associate Professor of Biological Sciences and who teaches courses in plant evolution and diversity, applied ecology and evolution, 
global change ecology, and evolutionary genetics. She also oversees the living collections in the Arthur Ross greenhouse that's on the roof of Millbank Hall. And I think she's brought some living specimens to illustrate her presentation. So, um, so with that, I want to invite you to welcome my colleagues to the stage. And as I say, we'll just hear from them in order and then have a little conversation among them and then with you. Thanks for coming. Hi. You know, it's so interesting. You go into academia thinking you'll have all these wonderful conversations with colleagues that you see all the time. And I do see my colleagues all the time, but our conversations end up being about committees. So I'm really grateful to BCRW for bringing us together because I've known about their work, but it's, it's wonderful to be able to have this opportunity to talk together about our mutual interest in food. So thank you. Um, and this is a rather formal presentation, so uh, I apologize in advance. And also, I'm going to be reading from some 17th century prose, which is can feel a little alien. I'm, try, do, I'm doing my best to break it down to be understandable, but if it's not you, it's the text, um, if you can't know. So. In the fall of 1594, King James IV of Scotland and Queen Anne of Denmark celebrated the baptism of their first son, Henry Prince of Wales, with a banquet. According to one contemporary account, the banquet's planners initially envisioned entering, centering the event on a chariot-shaped table drawn in by a lion. And I hope the uh, Barnard's event planners are listening because we clearly need to step up our game without events. <laughs> Others, however, doubted the wisdom of bringing a full-grown lion into a room full of ambassadors and nixed the idea, and this is a quote, because his presence, that is the lion's, might have brought some fear to the nearest or that the sights of the lights and the torches might have commoved, that is, disturbed or agitated, the lion's tameness. This aborted staging was shortly after satirized in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, when Bottom and the Rude Mechanicals discussed bringing a lion into their own court performance of Pyramus and Thisbe. Neither Shakespeare nor generations of subsequent critics pay much attention to the lion's replacement, a resplendently dressed black man. And this is, again, a quote. There came into the sight of them all a blackamoor drawing a, drawing a triumphal chariot, and before that the melodious noise of trumpets and oboes. Which chariot entered the hall, the motion of the whole frame, which was twelve feet long and seven feet broad, was so artificial within itself that appeared, it appeared to be drawn in only by the strength of the moor, which was very richly attired. His traces, that is his harnesses attaching him to the table, were great chains of pure gold." Upon this chariot was finally and artificially devised a sumptuous covered table decked with all sorts of exquisite delicates and dainties, a patisserie, fruitages, and confections. So for my brief time tonight, I'm going to discuss the meanings of this banquet and lay out my reasons for arguing in the larger project that the banquet is a significant cultural and literary form in the 17th century, which mediates desires about class, gender, and commerce. And I don't have, there are no images that I know of this banquet, but I threw up here an image from a memorial portrait of Lord Henry Unton. And in the middle, it gives um, his wedding feast. And then you can see just the little part on the uh, left, um, the, a banquet that would be accompanied, that would accompany the wedding feast. And then on the right, a detail of that with the little paired um, little people in black and white marching around. Um, so, yeah, yeah, sorry. Before sugar became widely used as a sweetener for coffee and tea, that is, before it became part of ordinary culinary patterns, it was primarily found in confections, which served both as medicine and what was known and as what was known as banqueting stuff. 
the production of confections and cordials is primarily associated with elite women and, I argue elsewhere, a significant part of women's literary culture in the early modern period. And because I have some kind of innate perversity, I'm actually not going to talk about women in this talk, but I would argue that this is a feminist analysis of a sort. Um, but we can talk about it during the question and answer period. Sugar in the early modern period is a noble luxury. Its associations with royal power and subjectivity maintain a powerful hold in the English imagination, even as prices plummet and access spreads to acquisitive, uh, status-conscious strivers. Even as its consumption spreads beyond the aristocracy, sugar's age-old associations with royalty become part of its added value. In this time, the word banquet, and I'm going to see if I can... Uh, I'm going to show you just a couple of images. This is an engraving of a banqueting table, and it's in a cookbook that encourages women, not royal women, but kind of uh, women with money of the mercantile classes to emulate their elites. And these are kind of dishes and silverware made specifically for banqueting stuffs. And these are two pictures where I tried to isolate the details that show you a little bit of the banqueting. So as I'm talking, kind of imagine something like this, but in just enormous quantities. In this time, the word banquet designated not only what we might call a feast, an elaborate meal consisting of many courses, but what was dubbed the void, which Patricia, critic Patricia Fumerton identifies as the serving after a meal or sometimes between meals of decorative sugar molds and sweetmeats, that is, confection flowers, nuts, spices, and fruit. More associated with entertainment than nutrition, banquets are a course of culinary and sensuous delight that seem to become an inescapable part of elite English celebrations during the 14th century. When sugar becomes cheaper and increasingly available through European Atlantic expansion, banquets become more important, more highly elaborated, and more widely imitated across classes. The description of this court banquet gives us a window into Sugar's early associations with royal power and colonial aspiration, connotations that would follow the consumption of sugar across classes for the next century. This event shares several structural elements that help leave the banquet form its particular purchase in English political and economic life. And I'm not going to elaborate on this that much, but uh, I can come back to it. So a dependence on extravagant amounts of sugared confections an association with secrets, exclusive knowledge, and separation, consumption of goods deemed rare, valuable, and exotic, dominion over nature, and wealth delivered without labor from nature or from exotic but domesticated uh, people of color. In these last three attributes, one can see the emerging colonial valences of the banquet, the inclusion of a laboring black man, decorated and or burdened, depending on how you look at it, with gold chains, attaches this banquet very directly to a mercantilist vision validated by nature itself. The table is an image of maritime control made entirely of sugar. And this is a rather large, long series of quotes. And so he, that is the black man, in outward show, pleased to draw that forward, which by a secret convoy was brought to the prince's table, and the whole dessert was delivered by series, fecundity, concord, liberality, and perseverance to the earls, lords, and barons that were servers, which were immediately delivered to the servers forth of the galleries of this ship out of crystalline glass, very curiously painted with golden azure, all sorts of fishes, as herrings, whitings, flooks, oysters, buckies, lampets, partons, lapstars, crabs, sputfish, and clams, with other infinite things made of sugar and most lively represented in their own shape. 
So in this interlude, joined near to an end in the very last courses, was discovered this sentence likewise, submissus adorata oceanus, inferring that the ocean sea, by offering the shapes of her treasure, humbly adored and honored the sitters. For a lion to bring in such a tableau serves the general theme of uh, control over, royal control over nature. However, an enslaved black man presenting the desire for expansion marks uh, the, the, also the desire to move into the profitable arena of tra- tropical commodities. England did, at this time did not own the immensely profitable sugar factories of uh, Portu- Portugal in Brazil. However, this court fantasy offers a compensatory image of wealth bought without labor. While the slave is obviously a commodity, or maybe not, I'll argue, I can argue with you about it, as in other instances where black people are used as luxury objects in the early modern period, he is also surrounded by expensive goods, imported glass, finely wrought tapestries and tablecloths, and fish made of marzipan. In this description, fish is both abundant and overdetermined, layering fantasies of foreign colonial wealth over a celebration of local industry. Fish were integral to the economic life of the British Isles and to the British diet, and herring in particular was abundant in the waters off of Scotland. To have a range of fish made in sugar, a foreign and sought-after commodity, not only celebrates the natural fertility and future success of the Commonwealth, it advertises one's access to colonial circuits of trade. Thus, the dessert table enacts a global fantasy. Not only African peoples, but the very ocean itself affirms Scottish desires for wealth and expansion. And... um, I should just say that this kind of uh, recreation of nature and sugar is very common in these banquets, and you get in the description this long list of all the things made out of sugar, you know, people, animals, all kinds of things, both in what they call flat forms, so etched in sugar, but then also in marzipan, things that are made to look, try to resemble sugar as much as possible. Access to sugar in England accelerates as sugar economies develop first in Portuguese colonies in South America and then in Anglo-Dutch plantations in the Caribbean. In this moment of national promise, so 1594 for James, an heir born as James is angling to be Elizabeth I's successor in England, an heir, I should add, who demonstrates to English elites his ability to create a secure line of succession, so in contrast to the childless Elizabeth. The court is able to use all manner of candied foods to express their royalty, their consonance with England's emerging maritime, maritime identity, and their desire to join European competitors on the global stage. So that's what I have to say. Um, and I think we agreed we'd, we'd end with a couple of questions. So my two, I have a lot of questions, but, um, and besides, you know, what, why we care what, what rich people ate over 400 years ago, but um, how is labor or its absence used to enhance or create the value of foodstuffs? And how, how does food create gendered meanings? And how, in what ways is food performative? So those would be the questions. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I want to second Kim's remark about how often all of four of us have emailed sharing syllabi and other thoughts about our research and um, never having the time to sit down together to talk about it. So it seems that we have company <laughs> to do that tonight. Um, I'm just going to um, give you some freewheeling thoughts about um, my project, Milk. Uh, I guess I should say my former project. It's, it's now finished. Um, 
Um, but it isn't really finished because my experience in the aftermath of the book publication has been um, truly an education. Um, I've, I wasn't completely prepared for how this subject was of such popular interest, and I know that may sound naive, but when you're an historian of the early modern period, <laughs> you don't expect journalists to come forward and say, so your project is really about women, isn't it? Um, and that was a question I got again and again. Um, the book, as you have heard, was titled Milk, A Local and Global History. And there's no hint of gender in the title, obviously. But again and again, um, people have asked me about that because obviously um, milk does have to do with women. Um, I tried using the old uh, motto of the Barnard Women's Center, um, by, for, and about women. And yes, milk is by, for, and about women. Um, not only women, but certainly um, largely women. Um, so in my research, and certainly in the coverage I give in the book, uh, again and again I encountered images of women, uh, discussions of gender, um, and uh, to begin with, um, lots of symbolism having to do with the fact that milk originally comes from the breast. And here you're looking at Isis, the Near Eastern goddess of motherhood and fertility, um, in a pose that was reproduced uh, in miniature uh, thousands of times. There are amulets and tiny statues hand-sized um, in museums all around the world of Isis nursing her son Horus um, and projecting her breasts in a very forthright way as a, as a, a means of indicating um, sustenance, basically, um, which is what milk is. It's everyone's first food. Um, there are many other such goddesses and images uh, that um, repeat this kind of image. Uh, in uh, mythology, there's the story of the origin of the Milky Way, depicted here by Tintoretto, um, in which Jupiter brings the mortal baby Hercules to Juno as she sleeps. Um, the intention was to get Hercules to nurse from her breast, and that would make Hercules immortal, like the gods. And in doing so, in bringing the baby to her breast, his sucking caused her milk to let down. She awoke, she startled, moved away from him, the baby, and so the milk sprayed to the heavens, creating the Milky Way, and sprayed to the earth, creating um, lilies of the field. Um, it's a wonderfully colorful story, um, and again, indicates just how powerful and valuable uh, breast milk um, actually was and still is. Um, jumping to a later age, uh, another woman who f figures in the book is Selena, Countess of Huntington. Um, I use her as a good example of a woman who sought out milk as a remedy for bodily ailments. Because obviously milk isn't only um, drunk by babies at the breast. It was sometimes, particularly in this period, drunk as a remedy for um, upset stomachs, metabolisms that had gone wrong. In this case, um, very vaguely stated female problems. 
Selena took herself to the city of Bath, <clears throat> where there was obviously a health spa, as many of you know. And uh, instead of drinking water, uh, her doctor indicated that she should drink milk. Um, she had already had several children. She wanted more. And eventually, she was able to have uh, more children using this uh, not-so-unusual remedy. Um, the milk diet became famous in the Enlightenment as a, um, a way of uh, escaping too much civilization. There was something pure and natural about milk, and it was a good way to uh, simplify one's inner self. Um, now, in a yet later age, um, in the early 20th century, uh, Elizabeth Lowell Putnam, a Boston Brahmin, I guess we could say, um, uh, made it her job to promote pure milk, that is, clean milk that was safe for children to drink, uh, as it was uh, marketed to the public. And at the time, milk sources were um, highly contaminated, sometimes by tuberculosis, diphtheria, um, all kinds of uh, diseases could get um, harbored in milk because it's an organic substance and is uh, like a petri dish, uh, providing all the food for any bacteria or uh, disease organism uh, that gets into it. Putnam um, lobbied the Massachusetts State House and uh, did make it public, uh, a public issue. Uh, the need for uh, clean milk. Incidentally, one of her children had died from drinking contaminated milk. Um, we know that the fight for pasteurization was a successful one, um, not entirely uh, for the entire United States until the 1930s. Um, even today, there are state-by-state -state laws. But in any case, pasteurization was the solution the need for large quantities of milk for uh, large-scale uh, consumption. Um, here you're looking at um, a more commercial um, solution to the problem of milk, the problem of getting milk to the masses. Um, this is a picture from Rushton, England, of a woman delivering milk door-to-door -door for the Rushton Cooperative Society. At various points in history, the price of milk went up because of shortages um, or simply because producing milk is an expensive task. And uh, the Russian cooperative um, was very active in protesting uh, rising food prices as well as rising prices of milk. Uh, and this is a postcard that was in the possession of a man who was related to this woman um, who kindly offered it to me uh, for use in the book. Um, the activism of women in milk history uh, is, is obviously um, very important in both uh, the provision of safe milk and the um, provision of affordable milk. So uh, that's why they appear. Um, now to move on to the 21st century, this is a picture from Holly Green Farm in Bledlow in Bedfordshire. And, um, I think this picture is worth a million words uh, because I wanted to end my presentation by talking about raw milk, um, a subject I mentioned briefly in the book, but a subject that ends up being the central theme of every 
uh, discussion I've had with uh, the public. Um, here you see a modern dairy farm. They don't, they're not quaint places. They're places full of uh, gleaming stainless steel, um, rubber tubing, beeping computers, uh, all kinds of data pouring out of machinery. Um, and this is a fairly uh, large dairy farm for English standards. I think there were um, 400 cows at this farm. Um, you'll notice that the three women working in the, in the milking parlor are indeed women. Uh, women have always uh, been popular as milkers because they supposedly have a way with cows. Uh, <laughs> this is worth discussion, too. Uh, <laughs> the last dairy farmer I met on Martha's Vineyard told me that uh, he was told he should definitely get some female milkers because his attitude toward time was inappropriate for dealing with cows. <laughs> and he had spent <clears throat> the first part of his adult career as an oil futures trader in London. So <laughs> he definitely had a different attitude towards time. Um, but why the craze about raw, why the craze for raw milk? That was the question that um, presented itself. And uh, I, I'll give you the short answer, and we can talk about it. Uh, at length later, but um, it's clear to me, now that I've tasted raw milk, that um, it stands for pure, unadulterated nature. I mean, it tastes like what we imagine um, the pastures that cows graze in taste like. Um, it has a slightly grassy taste, it's creamy, it's full, it's complex, all of those things. Um, and people nowadays do seem to have uh, had enough of modern food, right? Probably everyone in this room has something negative to say about supermarket food. Um, and certainly milk is one of those products on the perimeter of the store that you're meant to encounter and leave the store with. Um, in fact, that was the problem I began the book with. Modern milk in the carton, uh, uniform, predictable, homogenized, pasteurized. Um, and raw milk is a rebellion against all of that. Um, it's an expensive rebellion, and it raises a lot of questions about social class, uh, the price of food, what we should be paying for food, how much it costs to produce our food, uh, and how much we need to know about our food. And the, my final words have to do with just how much everybody in the room already knows. I mean, the degree of sophistication in our education about nutrition, about food production, and even about commerce. I say even because often we're uncritical of it. You know, we go to the store and we buy what we want and come home. But nowadays there's a much more uh, careful interrogation going on about um, how things got to the store. Was there a middleman? Uh, were things contaminated? Were they changed by the middleman? When was it produced? How old is it? Uh, and how much should it cost? Um, so that's where I'm going to stop now, and I hope we can talk more about milk in the question and answer period. My presentation is going to be especially freewheeling because I can't see the notes that I have on the PowerPoint presentation. So here we go. Um, this presentation, you can't see the slide, but the presentation is based on a book that's coming out in January called From Modern Production to Imagined Primitive, The Social World of Coffee from Papua New Guinea. 
Um, I've worked on the island of New Guinea for the past 15 years, and I'll tell you a little bit about coffee production there tonight. I sadly can't tell you about three, 300 pages worth of uh, research, but I'll try to give you about 10 minutes. So this is the way that we normally meet coffee here in New York City. We meet it when we're on the go. We meet it when we're running to class. We meet it when we're running from class. We meet it in a way that makes it part of our daily life. Up until quite recently, the coffee that most people met in the morning was instant coffee, those crispy diamond-like granules that were produced in mass in the United States between World War II and 1980. That kind of coffee is what we might think of as Fordist coffee. It's standardized. It was produced in factories. Isn't that good, Fordist coffee? <laughs> that makes me happy that Herb just laughed at that. Um, so it's Fordist coffee. It's mass-produced. It's standard. There's no sense of distinction that you get from, from drinking it. It's what everyone else here drinks. It's what your grandmother drinks. It's what your great-uncle Irvin drinks. But today, we meet coffee in a very different way. We meet coffee that's part of what we think of as a specialty coffee market. And specialty coffees are coffees that came onto the market in the 1980s with the breakdown of something called the International Coffee Agreement. The International Coffee Agreement was a price-fixing agreement that fixed the price for coffee in all of the tropical coffees, all the tropical countries that grow coffee. So what that means is that growers got paid a fair wage for their labor. It was an international standard, and it fell apart in 1982. It fell apart as part of a larger global set of changes that have come to be known as neoliberalism. The people today that sell you most of your coffee, most of your specialty coffee, and specialty coffee is usually single-origin marketed coffee. So if you buy coffee from Kona in Hawaii or from Jamaica or from Papua New Guinea, that's single-origin coffee. Um, also Tanzania, lots of single-origin from Tanzania. Or any of the flavored coffees or any of the certified coffees, so fair trade coffee, organic coffee, bird-friendly coffee, these are all specialty coffees. So remember I said the, the ICA fell apart in about 1986. The SCAA, the Specialty Coffee Association of America, was founded in 1982. And it was a group of businessmen who decided that they wanted to figure out a place in the market for their specialty coffee. They could see that the ICA was falling apart, and they wanted to create a professional organization to help them create a kind of market venture to move this coffee. So SEA is where coffee, coffee meets brands. It's where it gets branded. It's where people talk about brands. The SCAA is where coffee comes to have images of people connected to it. So the last slide was a picture of someone in Ethiopia picking coffee. You see this is a picture of someone who's wearing the puka shells. There's a woman that's coming in a sultry, dusky maiden kind of way out of the coffee cup. And coffee is also where we meet particular images of culture. And coffee is today where a lot of people meet Papua New Guinea, the place where I've spent the last 16 years doing research. So Papua New Guinea is the second largest island in the world. It's split in half by an international border. The eastern half is Papua New Guinea. The western half is West Papua, which is a colony of Indonesia. The eastern half, Papua New Guinea, is about the size of California. And just for comparison, it has about 6 million people, and California has about 36 million people. So very low population density. In Papua New Guinea, out of that 6 million people, about 3 million people depend on the coffee industry for their income. 3 million people. It's really the lifeblood of the highlands of New Guinea. 
86% of the coffee that is grown in New Guinea is grown in what we call smallholder farms. Smallholder farms are local families that aren't part of cooperatives. They're not part of a plantation. They grow coffee, usually a man and his wife or multiple wives. They grow coffee on their own land. They pick it and process, and process it themselves, so 86% of that coffee. For the people who grow coffee in Papua New Guinea, coffee means we are modern. Coffee is a thing that connects them glo globally to the rest of the world. And people are very clear on this. They understand that people like me and you drink their coffee. And because Papua New Guineans are relationship seekers, they always want to reach out and make a social connection with someone. Through the production of their coffee, they feel connected to us. They feel like they're connected to us through this very modern labor production. So coffee grows on trees. We have a coffee tree right here. I'm going to run through just a couple of pictures of coffee production in Papua New Guinea. So people where I work, I work in a series of villages in the eastern highlands um, that are Gimme-speaking villages. There are about 65,000 people who speak that language. There are 860 living languages in Papua New Guinea, so it's the most linguistically diverse place in the world. This is what coffee looks like when it's been picked and it's ready to be pulped. And this is a family getting ready to pulp their coffee. So people pick the coffee. Men and women go to gardens together to pick it. They pick the coffee. They dry it in the sun. And then they run it through pulping machines like this. This is called wet processing. And it's most of the coffee that you drink from most of the places in the world who have smallholder growers. This is the kind of coffee production that they do. Then the coffee is laid out on these mats, and it's dried in the sun. And then it's put in bags, and the villages I work in don't have a road, and so people carry it to the airstrip, and they wait for a plane to come pick it up. Now, this is an important, an important point. Oh, my goodness, my table came through. Excellent. Okay. So people carry their, carry their coffee to the airstrip, and they wait for a plane to come in and pick it up. These people have no access to markets at all unless that airplane comes in to get their coffee. They also, for the most part, have no access to markets, even if they were to carry their coffee out themselves. The people that help them get access to that market are the middleman. So whenever you hear the middleman demon, demonized in discussions about fair trade and organic coffee, remember that the middleman in Papua New Guinea is the person that actually makes that connection between local growers and the market. And the middleman is part of that three million people that depend on coffee for their livelihood. So this is a table that I think you can read. It's some time, some numbers about how long it takes to actually grow coffee. So about 286 hours for 132 pounds of coffee are two hours and 10 minutes for one pound of coffee. So when you buy a pound of coffee, it's two hours and 10 minutes of labor. Women make 15 cents an hour, 15 cents an hour for their labor. When we look at the global price structure of coffee, 15 cents an hour. So this is a middleman, the guy in the blue shirt, Atticus, who has four children, just to harp on the middleman thing again. He has four children. He lives in Garoka. He supports his children, his wife, and both sets of parents. So again, when you hear the middleman demonized, think about Atticus. Um, this is the, these are the planes that come and pick the coffee up. They fly it into a major town. They're mostly airplanes that are owned by Mission Aviation Services or the Seventh-day Adventist Aviation Service. And this is what it looks like when coffee gets to the, the city most, where most of it's processed, Garoka. So this is, as you see, a modern office. It's a company called Coffee Connections. They do fair trade and organic certified coffee. They have an office staff. They employ people as secretaries, as accountants, as 
processors. They have a whole sort of part of the industry in Papua New Guinea that is incredibly modern like any other industry. When the coffee gets to this part of the commodity chain, it means to these people, not only we are modern like you, but we are a nation that is part of this global commodity chain. So coffee comes to signify the nation of Papua New Guinea in important ways. So in rural villages, it signifies the modern. It signifies the connection between what people there have with people like us. In urban areas, it signifies that we're part of this much larger global commodity chain as a nation. And these are just some coffee processing pictures. So again, very modern industrial production. So when coffee leaves these factories, it gets on gigantic trucks and it drives down the Highlands Highway to the port at Ley. And then it goes onto the ships and for that coffee to have value after it leaves Papua New Guinea, it has to have a radically different set of meanings. So all of that stuff about we are modern just like you, we are a modern nation state, has to be drained out of the coffee. And the coffee has to have another kind of semiotic punch. All coffee that goes on board on ships becomes commensurable based on its ecology. So coffee that's grown in the highlands of Papua New Guinea that's Arabica coffee is almost identical to coffee that's grown in the highlands of Tanzania. And so what marketers have to do is create some kind of semiotic message in their marketing that distinguishes those coffees from each other. Many of the marketers that I spent time with, many of the roasters and marketers, are in Hamburg, which is a beautiful old city, and it's where a lot of the semiotic production that I'm going to tell you about happens. And these are some Hamburg pictures. That's the largest container ship in the world, by the way. They cut it in half and put some more in there and made it bigger. <laughs> All right, so when coffee passes through Hamburg, these, mar these marketers put a new set of semiotic messages on it, and then it goes to our local roasters. It goes to stores where it gets packed in beautiful bags that say Papua New Guinea. It gets lovely stickers that give it an origin, so you can see the bird of paradise there is Papua New Guinea. You can see the elephant, which is Kenya. So there are certain iconic images that come to stand in for the nation and for all of the labor that you've just seen. Turns out, in Papua New Guinea, it's the image of the primitive. The continual and constant way in which Papua New Guinean coffee is marketed is in terms of the image of the primitive or the image of the savage. Now, in fact, people in Papua New Guinea historically do have quite elaborate traditional costumes, quite beautiful traditional costumes. But today, nobody dresses like that. People dress like that for festivals, they dress like that for weddings, but it's not the day-to-day -day dress. But with the fusing of that image onto coffee from Papua New Guinea, a kind of semiotic slippage happens, where even when people are not thinking about coffee, they think about Papua New Guinea as the primitive, as these images that are connected with this very, very deep notion of the savage that we have in the West. And what that means is that that slippage goes into other parts of, other parts of daily life. So when you have people, particularly in Australia, which was the colonial power and is still the number one aid provider for Papua New Guinea and has the most sort of international influence on Papua New Guinea, when you have people in Australia in government thinking about what to do about the problem of Papua New Guinea, they always hearken back to these images of the savage. So the image of the primitive is not simply a pretty picture that shows you the beautiful feathers that people who grow your coffee wear. It's an image that actually has material effects and political effects for people in Papua New Guinea. And it also erases all of the images that I showed you before, images like these. 
images of very poor people who are trying to make a life growing this commodity. Thank you. Thank you, and, and good evening. I must say I also want to really thank the Barnard Center for Research on Women. And to say that I'm actually really honored to be here tonight, I uh, came to Barnard to interview and then to start my job in 1999. Very excited to be at a women's college and at one where this Barnard Center for Research on Women existed because biology and feminism had always been sort of a pet topic that, you know, in my scant spare time, I would try to read a few articles or books about it. And since coming here, I've come to so many interesting programs on everything from reproductive technologies to uh, climate change, you know, all sponsored by this organization. So I'm very honored to actually be one of the speakers instead of in the audience. And I really do admire the fact that most of the um, center's programs do include scientists. It's not just, you know, literature. It's not just history and culture. That they really do bring in the natural sciences. And I think when we want to talk about what's on our plate or what's in our cup or what's in our shopping baskets, we do want to talk about the materiality of, of, of what that is as well as the, the cultural and um, more imaginative aspects of them. And I think, you know, with food, whether we're talking about table sugar, which is I brought my little prop, as always, sucrose, right, for those of you who had chemistry. Um, it's a chemical. And um, coffee, you know, we obsess about coffee because we're interested in a very particular xanthine alkaloid called caffeine. Um, when we talk about milk, you know, we worry about the lactose, which is a sugar. We think about things like the um, special fatty acids that are in breast milk that are supposedly responsible for making our babies more intelligent. And we also think about the milk that we consume. Does it have exactly 1%? Because it probably came from a 1% cow? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous how chemical our food has become. And I think that's very much a 20th century thing. And I think in the 21st century, we're starting to get back to the natural history. And that's why I feel like this is such a powerful way. I haven't, unlike the other panelists, a book project on this, but I do teach about this all the time uh, to my students, my Barnard students, who are mostly women. And it's a way for me to remind them that in an age of DNA and other molecules, that natural history still matters. And I want to pause for a second and think about what is natural history. You know, it's a very old-fashioned idea. We can go all the way back to Aristotle and to the classical efforts to classify the natural world, whether it's the plants, the animals, the elements. Um, it, it's been done for thousands of years. But I think right now, we think about it, it really is almost equivalent to, like, you know, CSI, the food version. You know, it really is almost a forensic process to figure out what is it? What is in our coffee cup? And I think Paige very beautifully showed us that it is the outcome of labor and the marketplace, but it's also the outcome of real biology out in the natural world. And so that's why I think it's, you know, it's very exciting to use, whether you're talking about sugar or coffee or milk, it's an excellent um, departure point for talking about any aspect of biology, not just the sort of molecular human biology medical side, but realizing that all of that is connected to a much larger ecological system. So we can start from our plate and we can do sort of what I call forward forensics. You know, we want to talk, and again, it's, it's right back to Aristotle, causality. Does our food 
cause all of our illnesses. You know, we obsess about this. Our plates are overfilled with sugar, with cheese. And does that lead to our society being crippled by obesity, by diabetes, by heart disease? This is a very common theme in the media and in all of the science that's done um, in our country and around the world. Um, but at the same time, we can do a sort of reverse forensics. We can ask whether what we have on our plates is also causing a lot of our environmental problems. We can look at a coffee plantation, whether it's a small producer like the ones that Paige described in Papua New Guinea, which also exist in Latin America, they exist in Africa, they exist in um, South Asia, and that's where all of our very beautiful birds go during the winter, whether you're in North America or, or in, in Europe. And, you know, you get right back to Rachel Carson and the silent spring. It's not just caused by DDT, it's caused by the crops that we used to spray with DDT, that we now spray with something a little bit less dangerous. And we certainly convert rainforest, we convert native grasslands into coffee and into sugar because we have to feed seven billion people. I heard the seven billionth one was born yesterday somewhere in northern India, apparently. I think it was a girl. <laughs> so, you know, it would be really nice to take science and say, well, this is the solution. You know, we, we have the key. We are the, the perfect Sherlock Holmes detective that can tell you the answer to all of your problems because we have DNA and we have other molecules. And, you know, that's really dangerous to think because it, there are a lot of things that you can learn about sugar. I mean, you can think about sugar and DNA. You know, I know my colleague John Glendinning works with mice, and I always say he studies how mice taste, how their taste buds work, how do they consume sugar, how avidly they consume sugar, how avidly a mother mouse consumes sugar can affect how avidly her baby mice then go on to consume sugar. It's a very interesting thing that can be studied on the cellular level, but you know, on my side, I'm more interested in the ecological side in thinking about, well, sugar, it comes from sugar cane, which is over there, which is a tropical crop, but then it also comes from sugar beets, which are a temperate crop. And if you look at the United States, all of the sugar that we consume, and don't eat this, this is from Sigma, but if you get your dominoes, it's about half and half sugar beet, and sugar cane. And you know, you can look at Snapple the same way. A couple years ago, Snapple said, we're gonna go all sugar because we wanna go back to all natural. And it was a marketing thing. We want Snapple to seem pure. So they went away from corn syrup, which also can be used as a sweetener, back to sugar. Well, the irony of that in 2008, so roughly half the sugar in this country comes from sugar beet. And guess what? Almost 100% of it is genetically engineered. Okay, and in fact, questionably safe as a genetically engineered crop. I mean, you harvest sugar beet before it flowers, so there's not that much danger that the seed will spread and become weedy, but it, it's been genetically engineered to resist herbicides. But it's on the farms where the big agribusiness companies are paying farmers to grow the seed that is then distributed more widely to the growers who actually grow it for sugar. That's where it's escaping from, and it's going into Oregon and Idaho, and people find it on the side of the road, and it's very weedy, and you can't kill it very easily. 
So, you know, that's just one example. DNA and milk, we could go on and on, and I'd be happy to entertain questions that I think Deborah could answer. I was telling Deborah that my father worked for many years in the USDA milk order, so I know all about the uh, recombinant bovine growth hormone controversy. I lived through it because I was going to school at the University of Wisconsin during the early 90s when it was happening. So I read the paper every day, and cows, as of yet, are not genetically engineered. The hormones come from genetically engineered bacteria, but even in, in China, this, the, this study came out about this group in China that genetically engineered a cow, and then they cloned it. So I think there are seven or eight of them that are genetically identical. And this cow makes milk that has a human lysozyme protein in it, which is of particular interest because this is a signature of human breast milk. So this is really bizarre. You know, you have these transgenic things going on, which has all kinds of interesting things. And coffee, finally, with, with, with our third crop here, is not yet genetically engineered. But things that are woody and tree-like already are. Papaya is genetically engineered. And it's one of those few examples where genetic engineering has reached out to farmers in the tropics and in the developing world to give them a, a crop that's actually helpful. Papaya is, is genetically engineered to be resistant to a virus that was devastating a lot of tropical farmers. So, you know, should we do it with coffee? Coffee could be genetically engineered. So all those coffee cherries, which have to be very painstakingly harvested day after day, people go back to the same tree over and over again to maximize their harvest. They could be engineered to ripen synchronously and hold that ripening and then harvested with a machine. But do we want to do that? So, you know, that's why I think it's important. I think people will have questions about, you know, how does feminism fit into this? How does politics fit into this? And it's both about the obsession over our health, over the shape of our bodies, over the quality of our minds, over the shape of our children's bodies and our children's minds, um, that we really worry about this a lot. But we also have to think about the environment. And it is interesting to me that it's not the president who's talking about food all the time. It's the first lady. And, you know, as Deborah has said and as Paige pointed out, it's men and often, very often women who are also very involved in making these products that come into our, uh, onto our table. And, you know, for me as a point of view of what little I know about feminism, and I don't have any women's studies training, uh, but my long experience of sort of, you know, listening and reading, it's reassuring to realize that, you know, these kind of simplistic, quick techno fixes are obviously wrong and that you have to bring in a lot of um, historical perspective, feminist contemporary perspectives, race, uh, the North versus the South, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think when we look at food, we really are using it, as I said, as sort of a funnel, and then we broaden back out to agriculture, to marketplaces, and to other social institutions. And I think it's why it's a very exciting um, topic for our panel. So I thank you, and I thank the BCRW, and I guess we're going to have questions, right? Thank you all for a really interesting set of presentations. Um, while people are gathering their thoughts to ask questions and to engage with the panel, I thought I would just um, look at some of the notes that I was taking as you all were talking, because I was noticing some really interesting synchronicities among the things that you were talking about. I was particularly struck, just to start off, with um, your comments, Kim, about sugar and these elaborate confections and so on being used to signify wealth without labor. And then thinking about that in relationship to Deborah's point about milk um, 
as a, as a remedy and the milk diet as an escape from civilization. And so this kind of privileging of the natural, even as the natural is being produced through tremendous amounts of labor that is somehow effaced. And it connects, I think, interestingly, to Paige's um, wonderful presentation about the shifting signification and, and semiotics of coffee, where coffee for the people who are producing it in Papua New Guinea are, on the one hand, seeing it as a link to modernity, but then having to resignify it as a product of the primitive or the savage in order to make it marketable in a, in a modern Framework, And so I'm just interested in this sort of movement back and forth between the erasure and effacement of labor, the um, intensification of our sort of notions of, of labor, the movement between nature and culture, and then Hillary's um, wonderful presentation that points out that all the technologies that she's talking about, about genetic engineering and about various sorts of things that might be interventions into the production of these various commodities are very complicatedly um, ambiguous, right? That there, and, and I think that that came out through everything that everyone was talking about is that we're not talking about a sort of simple binary valence of either positive or negative, but that there are um, imbricated and complicated ways in which the valuations of these products and how they mean economically and culturally and socially changes over time depending on the setting and depending on the perspective. So that's just some thoughts that came to me as I was getting um, listening to you. And so maybe, maybe you want to interact with each other for a little bit and I will um, start to pay attention to the audience for people who have questions. Actually, I had a quick question for you, Paige, about... Um Oh, I've forgotten his name already. The middleman? So when, when he arrives, have they already settled on a price or? Okay, so the price is set. There's a, there's a price setting mechanism here in New York City that sets the price every single day for coffee. It's called the Coffee C. So the international price is set. The price that is given to growers in Papua New Guinea is the estimated price of what the exporters will get based on the C minus the amount of freight that it costs mm -hmm. to fly the coffee out. Mm -hmm. That's announced on the radio every single morning. Uh -huh. And then also there's a radio network, a sort of wireless radio network that goes around the highlands of New Guinea. And that's the first bit of information everybody gets every day. So the price is set, but middlemen are, I don't even like to call them middlemen. I just did it because I knew you guys had heard that before. <laughs> but the, the sort of coffee brokers come in and they do negotiate with people mm -hmm. For the most part, these are people that understand that multiple brokers are going to come in, and so they do give the – it's about the same price from every single, every single um, broker. People have a relationship with those brokers, though. And just a really super short story about that, Atticus, the, the kid that you saw in that picture who's a coffee broker, he was stuck in the village that I work in for three weeks because of rain, and so he was really incorporated into social networks. And now guys from the village who go out, and it's mostly guys that leave the village, women very rarely leave the village, guys that go out to the big city from the village stay at Atticus's house. And so there's a way in which these people that are coffee brokers also get incorporated into social networks that are not simply economic relationships. And actually, I, okay, and I also want to say something about coffee and sugar, because one of the things that's interesting to me about both of them, and uh, coffee comes into the English scene later, so I'm not paying as much attention to that, is the kind of um, 
extraordinary amount of labor and technological in innovation yeah. in intervention has to happen before it becomes something that we eat. And unlike, say, a carrot, which you could theoretically pull out of the ground and brush off and eat, you actually there's a lot of work and time right. that goes into it. And so for um, in the early modern period, there is a very interesting kind of, uh, to me, kind of commercializing eye. So um, as just as English travelers went looking for El Dorado, thinking about where they could find gold, they also went thinking about where they could grow sugarcane. Right. But when you read some of these narratives of travel, when they when they talk about sugarcane, they actually t literally talk about banqueting stuff. So they say you could actually grow and this will turn into banqueting stuff, right. not even into that interim step, which would be the sugar loaves. And so this kind of... Um, the stand-in of, of, the, of the banqueting things, the little con confections that I showed you the pictures of, for sugar, as in, not even right. sucrose, is one of those kind of semiotic slippages that I think, you know, that right. they were both kind of trying to get a... Well, and I think, I mean, I loved all of, all of the presentations, and I was nervous, so I didn't echo what my colleagues said, that we see each other all the time, and we really do talk about crazy stuff, and we never talk about our work, which is very sad. And I, a couple of things that I liked, one of them, this, this, with milk, coffee, and sugar, there's a way in which the labor goes away. The labor becomes completely disappeared, and it happened historically, and it happens contemporarily. And I think that's an interesting point of discussion, how labor becomes invisible and how contemporary marketing of food attempts, to some extent, to bring that labor back through certification, through third-party third certification, right? We want to know from farm to table. But what happens with that third-party certification when there's a certain narrative about labor that we want to hear, right? Because we don't want to hear narratives about labor that, you know, women make 15 cents an hour for, for, for doing this really hard labor. But we want to hear a different kind of narrative. And the other thing that struck me that all of the presentations touched on was this kind of slippage between natural and cultural, right? We're talking about commodities that when we think about them, we do think about them as natural. The Snapple story is a great story because sugar, it's the most natural thing in the world. <laughs> Our milk, what's more natural than milk? Well, really, what's more unnatural than all of these things in some ways, right? So I thought that was an interesting set of parallels. I think the biology also disappears. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, right. I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to bring a potted coffee plant and a, a chopped down sugarcane stock from our greenhouse is because I think relatively few of us have ever seen a coffee plant or a sugarcane plant. We certainly don't grow them in our gardens. I mean, interestingly, they're tropical, and so we're not in the tropics. But the same is true. I mean, how many of you have ever seen a cow milked? You know, you read about it in little stories when you were a child, and some of you may have seen it, probably because you went on a school trip or you spent a week at a farm when you were going to camp. But, you know, it's really a rare occurrence in our society. I guess another point of kind of parallels is this sort of long history of globalization, you know, this way in which commodities, food commodities, were the drivers of so much of the colonization and so much of the early bits of economic change that we think of as globalization and how that's still going on. And we kind of forget about historicizing this stuff when we think about commodities today. Milk um, reminds me repeatedly of how ambivalent we are about getting too close to nature, particularly when it oozes out of breasts or, <laughs> you know, comes out of cow's udders. And, um, you know, the... Um, this idea that I think Kim brought up first of the dominion over nature 
is a real impulse in our society, and we're all, you know, sharing in it. Um, we trust doctors because we want solutions to illnesses. Um, we want our food to be, uh, not to make us sick. You know, we don't want to um, contract disease. So we repeatedly renounce the pure nature that we can have. Uh, it's, it's a real tension. And, you know, there are times when you want to say, you know, let's all be natural. But I think in a, in a large urbanized modern society, it's very hard to do that. 